It's good to be back from Guatemala. Thank you for your prayers while we were there. God is always at work. He's always moving and, uh, and doing things. It's just wonderful when you get to be a firsthand witness to some of that, and, uh, and we value the opportunity to do that, but uh, certainly your prayers on our behalf as we were there. God was and continues to be very good um, and prevalent. I'm going to talk a little bit about Guatemala. Uh, this is not about Guatemala, but, but it ties in really, really well uh, to Acts 17. In Acts 17, as we go through this series called Unstoppable, about God's unstoppable church uh, and his unstoppable kingdom, just chapter by chapter, we're in verse 17, or chapter 17. This is, a, this is, a, this is one of my favorite chapters because it's where we derive our name, Flipside, from. Uh, and I'll explain that to you as we go through this. If you have a Bible and brought one with you or it's on your smart device, turn to Acts 17, if you would, please. Um, the Acts 17 is, is really kind of, we begin to see the culmination of uh, lives that are following Jesus as disciples of his. Uh, we're beginning to see the fruit of the first church as it spreads uh, around the known world. And in Acts 17, we, we start to see kind of the, all, all this seed that's been planted, the, the, the fruit of it. And um, it's beginning Paul's, we're right on the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey. And so he's traveled around quite a bit. He's, he has some people traveling with him. And this thing is just going to take off and flourish in the chapters that come. I'm excited about Acts 17 next week because what we'll see in Acts 17, or 18 next week, what we'll see in Acts 17 is, uh, is, is, is follows over into Acts 18 next week. And there's, a, there's an interesting little tie-in that we'll talk about next week. But for now, Acts 17 verses 1, 2, and 3, uh, let me just read you. And whoever's on that computer, you just click along and follow along. I'm just going to read this. Uh, when they had passed through uh, Amphop, Amph, what that place, Amphipolis uh, and Apol, uh, Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, uh, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Um, as was his custom, Paul's custom was to go to church. He, he, did, he did miss a week. It wasn't like, I'll go to church if you know, I don't have something else to do. It's not a game on, I got a barbecue. I'm out late the night before because I was getting dumb. I just said, okay, I'm just, we go to church. That was his custom. Uh, and for those of you who have made it your custom, good on you. It's very biblical. For those of you, that's the standard for your family. As for me and my house, we'll follow the Lord and we'll go to church. Good for you. That's, we see it modeled by Paul. It's the custom. I went to church. He went to church. And his custom was to make much of Jesus and the resurrection. He would go to a new town, in this case, Thessalonica, and on and three weeks in a row, he went to church and they talked, he talked about Jesus and the resurrection. Now, he was in a Jewish synagogue, and so they weren't non-religious people. They were Jews. They were looking forward to the Messiah. They didn't realize that Jesus was him. And so Paul goes to the Jewish synagogue, 
uh, and he talks to them. Uh, I know you're looking forward to the Messiah. Let me tell you, he was just here. His name is Jesus. Talks to him about the good news of Jesus, his death, and his resurrection. The interesting thing to me is it took three weeks for a church to start. Paul didn't waste any time. When God moves, it doesn't take a lot of time. In three weeks, so you, you, you go on and read the rest of this and other parts of Scripture, you know that a church started here after three weeks. It was amazing. And he made much of Jesus and much of the resurrection. And the Bible says, this is what I find interesting, that he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. A couple of things I want us to understand. The Christian faith is a reasoned faith. Paul didn't go to them and say, just believe this because I said so. It's a reasoned faith. It's an intellectual faith. Not that you have to be an intellectual to have faith, but nor do you have to check your brain at the door if you have faith either. It's a reasoned faith. And, and I love the fact that Paul took the time to reason with them because he was in the, in the context of people who reasoned. They didn't want to just believe it because they were told it. And so Paul took the time to reason with them. He defended his faith. And as 1 Peter 3.15 will say, he gave the reason for the hope that he had, and it was a reasonable reason. It wasn't just his blind faith. And I love the fact that it says he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. There's no other information you need. There's no other source that's needed other than the Bible to reason about Jesus and the resurrection is all we need. It's all right here. The interesting thing about his reasoning is it's about Jesus and the what? And the resurrection. It's about Jesus and the resurrection. See, Jesus is set apart because of the resurrection. Every other religion in the world ends with a body in a grave, except Christianity. Christianity is the only world religion that has no body. The, 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 the tomb of every other world religion, from ancient times to modern times, go back to Muhammad, guess what? His bones are in the ground. Go recently to Joseph Smith, guess what? His bones are in the ground. Christianity is the only faith that has no body in the grave because of the resurrection. It is set apart. It would have been so easy to stop this whole Christian movement on day three. When the church claimed, the disciples claimed that he had rose, it would be so easy to stop on day three. All the Jews had to do who didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah was go to the tomb, open up, there's the body, done. All the Romans would have to do who wanted to prove that he was dead because it was a shame for them to be resurrected. They couldn't keep him in the ground. All the Romans had to do who were guarding the tomb was have to open the tomb and show the body. Christianity is the only world religion where there is no body in the grave. Do you understand that? And this is why it was the message of Paul. It's the resurrection. It sets it apart. And he reasoned from the scriptures a reasonable faith about Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection. Let me just push pause on my sermonizing right here and talk to parents. It's your responsibility to do this with your children. 
to reason with them. I don't care how young or old they are. To reason with them about why they can believe and trust the scriptures and Jesus and come to their own vibrant faith in Christ because of the scriptures. It's also your responsibility to know the scriptures, to reason from the scripture about Christ, to be able to prove to your own children living under your house, under your authority and mentorship as a parent, to reason with them from the scriptures. And so that's why I challenge you, make every effort to learn and to study scripture so that you can, starting in your own home, reason with your family about why they can trust and should trust Christ and his word. And that's why this Wednesday night from 6 to 7, I'm teaching this one class on how to read the Bible and get something out of it. And then, and then the week after that, we're, we're, we're going through my Bible study through the book of Genesis. So this is a one-time class I'm going to teach how to read the Bible and get something out of it. And the more you're able to do that, read the Bible, get something out, the more you will be able to reason from the Scriptures for the hope that you have in a convincing way. And so do whatever you have to do. But I want to help you learn how to read the Bible and get something out of it. So this is where Paul is. This is what, this is what he's doing. Look, look at verses um, 4, 5, and 6. Uh, from chapter 17. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number uh, of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. But the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They arrested Jason's house, who was a disciple, in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting. Now, my translation reads this. These men have caused trouble all over the world and have now come here. In the English Standard Version or the New King James Version, this is what it says. They have turned the world upside down. That's what it literally means. They've turned the world upside down. Acts 17.6. This is where we get the name of our church, Flipside. There's the world, and we want to turn it upside down. Do you understand that? This is the charge against the church. They meant it as a derogatory slam. I take it as a badge of honor to turn the world upside down. The best thing that can be said about the disciple of Christ is that they have turned their world around them upside down. The best thing that can be said about the church of God is that they've turned their world upside down and now they're here disrupting the city. It's the best thing that can be said. And this is the culmination of what's been building for 16 chapters, that they have turned the world upside down. See, the fact is that we believe in an upside-down kingdom. This is Christianity. It's a belief and an investment and a commitment to an upside-down kingdom. Not the kingdom of this world, not the kingdom of the culture that we're living in, an upside-down kingdom. It's different. 
And one thing I know, and you know this too, that to turn the world upside down, we have to live upside down lives. If we're going to turn our world upside down, we have to live upside down lives. And disciples of Christ don't just follow him for fire insurance to avoid hell. Disciples of Christ live upside down lives. And because they live and as they live upside down lives, it turns the world upside down. That's Acts 17.6. Disciples of Christ are upside down lives. The way they use and invest their finances is upside down for the rest of the culture. It's not a life of debt. It's not a life of materialism. It's a life of financial freedom and investment in the kingdom in sacrificial and greatly sacrificial ways. It's upside down. Disciples of Jesus live upside down lives and have upside down priorities. Their priorities in this life are just different. It's not just about comfort and retirement. It's different. Disciples of Christ have upside-down lives of sacrifice. The sacrifices that disciples of Jesus make is upside-down for the sacrifices the rest of the people make. Sacrifice greatly. Disciples have upside-down lives in their definition of success. The way a disciple defines success is not at all the way the rest of someone who's not a disciple defines success. It's upside-down. It's different. Disciples have an upside-down view of service through the church to real people in their own community. I mean, if you need to turn your life around, flip it upside down. It's Jesus and the resurrection. It's upside-down life. And this is what Jesus calls us to. This is, the, this is the texture of the first church. And that's why the world, that's why it was says in Acts 17, 6, they've turned the world upside down. It's so different. They don't look like the rest of the culture. Not out of righteous, uh, you know, self-righteousness, but their, their lives are just, they're just, everything's backwards for these people. What a compliment, huh? I mean, just consider the way of Jesus. His way is an upside-down way. And everything we've seen in the book of Acts, it's the result of upside-down life. Just, just for a minute, consider. Chapter 4, this wealthy man sells his own personal private property and gives all the proceeds to the church's mission. That's upside down, right? In chapter 7, you got this guy named Stephen that's so passionate about this upside-down kingdom that he just preaches and teaches and talks about this upside-down kingdom, and it causes such an uproar amongst those who are not upside-down that they martyr him. What an upside-down priority. The book of Acts is full of people who just have this bold witness for this upside-down kingdom, and they're berated, and they're beaten, and they go right back to the communities that beat them up to continue telling them about the upside-down kingdom. Got chapter 14 in Paul, who was beaten up. They think they killed him. They leave him on the, outside the city, left for dead, and he gets up, and he goes back into the city to talk to the same people that just beat him almost to death, 
to continue telling them about this upside-down kingdom. What an upside-down man. And then you got verse, uh, chapter 16 last week. Thrown in jail. Beaten up. Whipped. Brutalized. Thrown in jail. And a, a miraculous earthquake opens up the jail cell. And instead of writing their lawyer making phone calls, they're praising God and they stay in jail so they can keep witnessing about this upside down kingdom to the jailer that just abused them and enslaved them. Upside down life. Listen, this is the way of the kingdom. This is the way of the kingdom. I don't ever want my faith to become so inoculated by my comfort and the culture that I become immune to the priority of the upside-down kingdom in my life. You understand? Stuff is amazing. Look at verses 7 and 8. So they say they've turned the world upside down. Now they've heard of something in our city, verse 7. And Jason has this as their charge. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They're all defying Caesar's decree, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. They were disturbed because of the message. But listen to the message that, they were, that disturbed them. The message was about a new kingdom and a new king. See, it was a threat to the status quo of their kingdom. It was a threat to the status quo of their political system. It was a new king and a new kingdom, which meant they had a new allegiance. Not to a political party, not to a social agenda, but to a new kingdom. As I coach church planters and, and young men, I tell them all the time, the most dangerous thing they can do is to preach this. It's the most dangerous thing. And I tell them, this will get you in trouble outside the church and this will get you in trouble inside the church. Because this is not beholden to any person nor party. And if this is the plumb line, at some point it will be offensive to the right and it will be offensive to the left. And it will be offensive to the people outside the church. It will be offensive to us inside the church. This is the most dangerous thing you could preach. This is the most dangerous thing you can believe. This is the most dangerous thing. This is revolutionary. And what disturbed them was the message of a new king and a new kingdom. Because no longer were they beholden to the party line. Any party line. I just want to encourage you to be mindful as we go into this next election season. Anytime the church aligns itself politically, the church loses. Anytime the church becomes a right-leaning church, it loses. Anytime it becomes a left-leaning church, it loses. Politics is antithetical to the mission of the church, and anytime the church becomes political, it loses. The heart of politics is division and conquering. The heart of the gospel is reconciliation. God to man and man to man. It's the ministry of reconciliation. 
And politics will always destroy the church when the church aligns itself politically. Please understand that. The disciples are to have an allegiance. It is to Christ and his kingdom. Am I clear? So have your eyes wide open as you go into this next election season. Don't let it ruin the mission of God's church in this world and his role in your life. Do you know that Jesus didn't come to earth to die on the cross so we could be Christian and get our fire insurance? He didn't come to earth so we could believe in him and just escape hell. I mean, that's a great benefit, believe me. But the point of being a Christian is to become a disciple, not an avoider of hell. To become a disciple of Jesus. Just think for a minute the cost of discipleship from Jesus' own lips. Someone wanted to follow Jesus, and, and Jesus said, that's great if you want to follow me. And he said, well, let me go back and bury a family member. And do you know what Jesus told him? He said, let the dead bury their own dead. You follow me. That's pretty profound. He's saying, I, I, I know you've got some relationships, but those are with people who are not my followers. Let them take care of their own business. You follow me. Upside down. Someone want to follow him? He said, I'll tell you what, first you deny yourself and you put on the cross of submission on your back and then you can come follow me. You want to follow me? You start living a life of self-denial right now. He says, I'm your total allegiance. Hmm? This rich guy wanted to follow him and Jesus told this one rich guy, he said, I'll tell you what, you go sell all your abundance and take all what you get and give it to the poor and then you come follow me. Why don't you start living an upside down life as far as your materialism and possessions are concerned? Right now, they're your allegiance. He says, I want to be your allegiance. A disciple is different than a Christian. You can be a Christian and not be a disciple. And you go to heaven when you die, and that's fantastic, believe me, because you don't want to be in another place. You know? But Jesus didn't come just to make us Christian. He came so that we'd be disciples. And a disciple is the follower of Jesus that gives sacrificially, that serves other people through his church, that witnesses boldly. And if those things don't mark our lives, we are not disciples. We might be Christians, but not disciples. It's an upside-down life. The whole point of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, Matthew 6, Matthew 7, is this. It's upside-down. Just as you thought it was this way, I'm telling you, it's this other way. It's upside-down from what you think. And this was the charge against the first church. And this is why it was so unstoppable. They have turned the world upside down because of their upside down living. And now they're here disrupting our city. That's what I want said about me. That's what I want said about us. Because that's biblical. You know this as well as I do. In order to turn the world upside down, we have to live upside down lives. This guy's name is Erwin. He's the short Guatemalan amongst us. 
He's lived in this little town called Hocatillo for his whole life, serving the poor, serving those who are unserved. He and his family diligently witnessing, sharing Jesus, and planting churches. And in Guatemala, when they plant churches, the planter, the pastor, actually goes and digs the ground and digs the trenches and puts the the bricks on top of each other and does the mortar and does the roof work and the electric. I mean, they actually build their churches. We would die there. He has an apostolic gift that goes and builds the church. And we, believe me, this is where a lot of our money goes. And builds it, starts it, develops it, reaches men, turns the church over to them and goes somewhere else to start another one. It's incredible. This is Matilde. He was one of the men that Aaron reached. He was incarcerated, um, alcoholic, abusive, violent, womanizer, everything that some of you were, all without hope. Erwin shared Jesus and the resurrection with him. God turned his life upside down. And now he is discipling and training other men to start churches, just like he's done. Upside down, uncommon lives, turning the world upside down, disciples of Jesus. They've turned the world upside down. This is Tita, the one in the neck brace. For decades, she has served the poorest of the poor in the largest urban slum in Central America. In a ravine, half a, a mile long and half a mile wide, with shanty little houses built up, 70,000 people in a ravine, a mile long and half a mile wide. The poorest of the poor, the largest urban slum in Central America. That's divided into 10 different neighborhoods, each run by their own game. When we got involved with Tita, she had one academy where these kids would get schooling and food, the only nutritious meal they get, medical, Bible, psychology, the vast majority of children are sexually and physically abused on a regular basis in this place. The police don't go there. The military doesn't go there. It's hands off. At one point, there were 17 murders a day in these things. And their only hope is Christ and him crucified and resurrected that they learn about through these academies that also feeds them and educates them. When we joined her, there was one academy. Now there's five. She's giving her very being to the detriment of her own physical body. And she's okay with it because she knows she's going to get a resurrected one. that ain't ever going to deteriorate. Upside down lives. Lisa Caceres is sitting right here. I just caught you out of the corner of my eye, Lisa. Lisa does the same thing with Angels of Grace in Fresno and Madeira. Rescuing babies out of horrific situations of drug and, and, and sex trafficking and rescues babies and gets them in, in, in foster homes. One of those girls is a part of our church that was rescued. Upside down life. With an upside down judge as a husband. This is up in the hills. And thank you for your prayers for us last week. This is where we were headed, up in the hills in this hospital. 
This one little hospital services about a million people with equipment that from, that's been donated to them from the 70s. Medical equipment and gurneys that are rusted and torn up. This man, Tom's a part of our church, 40 years retired spinal surgeon with Kaiser. He came alive in this hospital, amazed at what they're able to do with such antiquated equipment. And we're making plans because of him and what God's done in his life and starting to turn his life upside down to transport medical equipment, new medical equipment that's being transitioned out of some hospitals to that hospital there in Guatemala. Can you imagine the amount of lives that are going to be saved? Upside down lives. This is discipleship. That's me playing hopscotch with a little girl. I just thought it was cute. (laughs) So, girl, man, I was trying to get her to hop and jump with me on the little hopscotch thing, and she just wasn't getting it. And I thought, what? It's not like, jump. I'm dragging her along, and she wouldn't jump. And her mom finally comes out and told me through an interpreter, she's got a disease in her hips, and she can't jump. (laughs) And I felt terrible. (laughs) Whatever. She was loving it. I'll have a hospital there soon anyway. So. But this is why I love our church. We have an upside-down church. I really believe it's, 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 it's upside is upside-down because it's upside-down from the popular emphasis of churches. See, we're upside-down. We move from scarcity to generosity. I don't know of another church that would give 41% of every dollar away to missions and church planting. It's amazing. I say all the time, I would love for God to have to, for us to have to close our doors because we gave too much money away. Because if we ever did that, we'd never have to close the doors. You'll never hear us talk from a standpoint of scarcity in this church. You will always hear us talk about from the standpoint of generosity. How much can we give away? It's upside down. From taking to giving. All we are is the all we are is the conduit. You don't give to us, you give through us. We're just gonna give your money away anyway. We're not gonna take, we're gonna give. That's what we do. From rules to grace. There's a lot of churches that got a lot of rules about what you gotta, you know, how you gotta behave, what you have to look like, and how you gotta talk. We don't we don't have rules. We have relationships, not rules. We have grace. And grace is really, really messy, right? Grace is really messy. I mean, this is a messy, messed up church. I'm just, uh, just look to the person to your right. You want to see how messed up it is? Look to the person on your left. They're even more messed up. Look at the person up here. It's a, the chiefest of all mess ups. I mean, really. But it's grace. It's just, it's just upside down. From coffee shops to church planting. I get on my coffee shop fountain high horse a lot because I, I, it just so grates me. We don't need another freaking coffee shop. You got a freaking cup of joy going everywhere. That's great. Nobody likes Starbucks anymore. There's too many of them. You know what the church needs more of? Is, 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 the world needs more of is churches. It's upside down, I'm telling you. Look at verses 16, 17, and 18.
Where is that in my Bible here? So Paul and Silas aren't where Jason is and the disciples. They're somewhere else. They're in Athens. Now look at this. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. So he reasoned. There he is again. He's in the synagogue and he's reasoning. This is what he does. Reason in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of uh, Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? And others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because why? Because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. There it is. Paul's heart broke for those who didn't know Jesus. It was, he was so grieved in his spirit for those who thought they were, who were intellectual, but they were, they were clueless and lost as far as Jesus was concerned. And his heart broke for him, and I have to ask myself this, and you've got to ask yourself this too. What does your heart break over? The disciple's heart of an upside-down life breaks over those who don't know Jesus yet. And you have some of those in your huddle. If you're a Christ follower, you have some people in your huddle who don't know Jesus yet. Does your heart break for them? And I love the fact that Paul understood his evangelistic, the style of evangelism that was needed for his huddle. These Epicurean and, and Stoic philosophers did not need to know here. They didn't need to hear Paul's testimony. They need to reason intellectually through their philosophy and see how their philosophy led them to God. And Paul understood that. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have a natural bent as far as witnessing is concerned. You don't even know what it is yet. That's a problem. But you have a natural. Some of you are great testimony tellers. I don't know anything. All I know, I used to be this way and I'm this way. And the difference is Jesus. That's testimony. Some of you are great intellectual guys like Paul used this here. I can reason with you through scripture and science, and I can reason with you and get you to God. There's all the, and I think I can prove to you seven, six different evangelistic styles from scripture. I've taught this already in our church. It's on our podcast. I want you to go to it and discover what, you, if you're a disciple of Jesus, discover what your evangelistic style, your natural style is. Go to Spotify. I was told it's also on Apple Music and on YouTube and all these other platforms. But I just want to tell you, go to Spotify Go to the podcast deal. I circled our little logo there with the little air, the little nail in it. That's our that's our flip side podcast channel. Go there and then look up this one right here. It's unfiltered and unplugged. It's all about your evangelistic style. I'll walk you through this process so you can understand how you're naturally gifted to do this. And then as Paul told Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. Your heart grieves over those who don't know Jesus. But no matter the style, the core is the same. It's Jesus. It's the good news of Jesus and the resurrection. Listen, you and I should never even ever try to argue someone, guilt someone, condemn someone, or judge someone into a relationship, ever. The good news of Jesus is crucifixion and resurrection. That's what communion's all about. Remember that. The fact that he's talking with, with Epicurean and Stoic philosophers Epicureanism, that's the philosophy that, that everything was to be enjoyed. Eat, drink, and be merry, right? There's some Christians who live this way. <laughs> we call it grace, and it's kind of abused. And the Stokes, the Stokes believes that you shouldn't enjoy everything, you should endure everything, so punish your body and don't enjoy anything and don't ever be happy. There's some Christians who live that way too. 
the most miserable people in the world. And Paul understood. He understood their beliefs and he didn't degrade them because of it. He walked with them through it. And the thing I love about Paul is that if you look at what Paul did, Paul started with God and he got down to them. That was so flip side from what they did. Epicureanism and Stoicism started with man and eventually tried to get to God. Paul said, no, 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 you got it backwards. We've got to flip this upside down. Let's start with God and get to man. And this is my concern about us. We try to do the same thing that the philosophers did. We start with us and try to get to God. God, I want this, this, and this from my life. I'm going to add you to my life to hopefully you make my life better. And that's backwards. We start with God. And then we make whatever adjustments we need to make. But it starts with him. The good news of Christ and Him crucified and resurrected. Let me just make this final note. I didn't get a preach last week, so I got a lot bent up inside of me. Can I just finish this one thing? The only message you talk about, the only message I talk about, the only thing worth reasoning over and discussing is the good news of Jesus and the resurrection. Don't get distracted. Don't you get distracted. Don't get duped into endless debate and quarrels and frustration and griping and posting about your politics and your politician. It's just a distraction. Christ, him crucified and resurrected. Everything else is going to get you off message. And nothing else is going to lead someone to the unstoppable kingdom. To be unstoppable means to be completely sold out and completely committed to the priority of the kingdom over all other things and to leverage everything that you have and all the resources given to you for the advancement of the kingdom. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Let me just wrap up Acts 17.6. In light of all this, here's the question. They turn the world upside down. Here's the question. How upside down is my life compared to the current of the culture? How upside down is it? Am I a Christian so that I get my fire insurance and avoid hell? That's not the point of this. It's a great benefit, believe me. But am I a Christian for that or to be a radical disciple of Jesus? If you have accepted Jesus as your Savior, this is the question that you ask yourself. How upside down is my life compared to the current of the culture? If you're not yet a Christ follower, I'm glad you're here. Stay here. Let's reason together about Christ and his kingdom. But I want you to know on the front end what it is Jesus is calling you to. An upside-down life of discipleship. And then the follow-up question to this is, what in my life do I need to turn upside down right now? What needs to be turned upside down?
This is the clarion call of Christ. This is the invitation to discipleship. Yes, God loves us and wants to spend eternity with us, no doubt. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Absolutely. But also so that while we are here, we would live a life of discipleship that creates an upside-down life that turns the world upside down. That's the call. So I dare you in the name of Jesus, if you are a Christian, to consider what in your life needs to be turned upside down right now to live an upside down life. And if you are not, I charge you in that same name to consider the claims of Christ and the love of God that wants you for eternity and wants you to have a radical life on earth. What's your prayer? Father, I thank you that you love us so much so that while we did in denial of you, before we ever could choose you, that you chose us and that you proved your love for us by sending your son to die for me, to die for us. Thank you. The proof of your love is so unmistakable and so undeniable. I thank you. Father, there are some of us here who have to confess and repent because our allegiance has been divided. We certainly want you in our life. We do want to avoid hell. We want things better, absolutely. You promise those things, but our allegiance has been divided. And so forgive us. Father, forgive me for my own apathy, for my lethargy, for how common my life has been at times. Forgive me for using faith as fire insurance. Father, I repent. And I ask that in repentance, you give me all that your grace will allow. Father, I pray that you hear the hearts of those who are yours right now who are praying that same prayer. Friends, I'd invite you in this moment to simply say, God, I'm sorry that my allegiance has been divided. It's been you and. And it just needs to be you. Forgive me. I repent. And just tell them, God, in repentance, give me all that your grace will allow me. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus yet, I want to invite you into it. A life of radical discipleship that will absolutely, if you let it, turn your life upside down because God loves you. I invite you in this moment, just say, God, I'm sorry for my sin. Forgive me. Thank you for what Jesus did on the cross. I believe it. And I accept you into my life. I want to be your disciple. I give you permission to turn my life upside down. God, I thank you for this church uh, that's made up of, of, of upside down lives. I thank you for the role you've given us 
in this community, in this world. God, because you so love the world that you gave your son so that we could believe in you and not just escape hell, but we could live upside down lives right now. God, turn our community upside down. Through this church, turn the ranchos upside down because of your love in our lives. Because of your love, turn Riverstone upside down through this church. And through this church and our upside down lives in this church, turn Rolling Hills upside down. God, through this church and what you're doing, through our upside down lives because of your love, turn Bonadelli upside down. God, through this upside down church, because of your love and your mercy and your grace, heck, turn Chow Chilla upside down. Everywhere you take us into Visalia, into Tulare, in South Dakota, and Idaho, and Denver, and Minnesota, and in Guatemala, and Cuba, heck, in Fresno, in Mexico. Everywhere you take us, upside down lives, we're yours. Not because it's a duty, but because it's a pleasure and a privilege, because you love the world, we do too. Turn our lives upside down and through us this world. You are a good God. And it is our privilege to give our lives and allegiance to you and your kingdom. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the name of Jesus, I pray these things, amen. Church, I love you. Let's stand up and sing.